Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this episode is called The Decline of the Crusaders, Episode 5, The Second Attack on Egypt. In the last episode, we heard about the King of Jerusalem, Amalric, who realised that if they were to survive, the Crusader states had to do one thing, which was to keep the Islamic world divided. But the problem the Crusaders faced was that the fragmented Arab emirates scattered across the Middle East were in fact uniting. Although the Turks in Anatolia were still fighting essentially as separate tribes, sometimes against each other, sometimes against the Byzantines and sometimes against the Arabs, the Arab emirates of Aleppo, Mosul and Damascus had been united by Zengi and his son Nureddin into what we call the Zengid Empire. However, Egypt was still a separate state, nominally under the Fatimid Caliphate. Now, we heard in the last episode how King Amalric had succeeded in doing something unheard of in Crusader history, which was to make an alliance with a Muslim state. That is, the Egyptian ruler Shawar against Nureddin and his Zengid Empire, but Shawa was very good at playing the Crusaders and the Zengids off against each other in order to preserve his own independence. Indeed, by 1167, he'd persuaded the Crusaders and Zengids to agree to leave Egypt independent, although it still paid tribute to the Crusaders. But King Amalric knew that this wasn't enough. If the Crusaders were to survive, they needed to conquer Egypt. So he turned to Byzantium as his ally for a joint attack on Egypt. In 1167, he married a Byzantine princess, Maria Komnena, and the Byzantine emperor Manuel and he started to discuss a joint attack on Egypt with the Byzantine navy supporting the Crusader army. The Byzantine navy was still very formidable at this time, although its army had never really recovered after its defeat by the Turks at the Battle of Manticurt. So the combination of a Byzantine fleet and Crusader army was a pretty good idea. But there were going to be plenty more twists and turns in this unusual story as you're about to hear. As before, I'll read extracts from my abridged version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. Just as the king of Jerusalem, Amalric, was making plans with the Byzantine emperor Manuel for a joint attack on Egypt, there arrived news from Egypt that the Egyptian ruler Shawar was about to stop paying tribute to the Crusaders and to make an alliance with Nur ad-Din and the Zengid Empire against the Crusaders. Immediately, Amalric summoned a council to Jerusalem. There, the Grand Master of the Hospital, Gilbert of Assei, urged vehemently that there should be no more delay and there should be an attack on Egypt. The majority of the barons agreed with him. The Count of Nevers and his men, who were newly arrived in the Holy Land fight for the cross, added their support. King Amalric agreed that some action would soon be needed, but he wished to wait until the Byzantine emperor's help was available. 
but he was overruled against the vigorous determination of the hospitallers and his own vassals, who saw no reason why the Byzantines should share in the spoils of an attack on Egypt. He gave way. So the Frankish army marched out from Ascalon on the 20th of October to arrive 10 days later before the Egyptian border fortress of Belbais. Shawar, the Egyptian ruler, was horrified. He never expected Amalric to break his treaty with him. His first ambassador, an emir named Bedran, met the king at Daron on the frontier but was bought over by him. The next ambassador, Shams al-Khilafa, found the king in the desert a few days out from Bilbais. He reproached Amalric bitterly for breaking the treaty, to which the crusader king replied that he was justified by the news that Shawar was in discussions with nur He might, he added, retire if he were paid another two million dinars. But Shawar now distrusted the Frankish king. To Amalric's surprise, he decided on resistance. His son, Tai, who commanded the garrison at the fortress of Bilbais, refused to open his gates to the crusaders, but his forces were small. After three days of desperate fighting, of which Amalric had not thought the Egyptians capable, the Frankish army entered the fortress on the 4th of November. There followed an appalling massacre of the inhabitants. The protagonists were probably the men from Nevers, bloodthirsty and lawless like most newcomers from the West. Their count had died of fever in Palestine before the expedition started and there was no one that could control them. King Amalric tried to restore order and when at last he succeeded, he himself bought back from the soldiers the survivors that they had taken captive. But the harm was done. Many of the Egyptians who disliked Shawa had been ready to welcome the Franks as deliverers and the Christian Coptic communities, particularly numerous in the Egyptian Delta cities, had hitherto worked with their fellow Christians. But Copts, as well as Muslims, had perished in the slaughter. The whole Egyptian people was united in hatred of the Franks. A few days later, a small Frankish fleet, mainly manned by Westerners, which was to sail up the Tanitic mouth of the Nile, arrived in Lake Manzala and fell suddenly on the town of Tanis. The same scenes of horror followed, and it was the Christian Copts, above all, that suffered. Amalric delayed a few days at the fortress of Bilbaus, no doubt to re-establish control over his army. He missed the chance of taking Cairo by surprise and only appeared before the walls of Fostat, the old suburb at the south of the great city, on the 13th of November. Shawar, doubting his ability to hold Fostat, set fire to it and sent his ambassador Shams once again to the king to say that sooner than let Cairo itself fall into crusader hands, he would burn it to the ground with all its wealth. Amalric, whose fleet was held up in the delta by barriers placed across the riverbed, saw that the expedition had gone wrong. On the advice of his general, Miles of Plancy, he let Shawa know that he could be bought off. Shawa played for time. He began to haggle over the sum that he could afford. He paid 100,000 dinars down to ransom his son Tai and talked of further payments 
response. Meanwhile, the Frankish army moved a few miles northwards and encamped at Mataria by the sycamore beneath whose shade the Virgin had halted on the flight into Egypt. They waited eight days there when suddenly the news came Nuruddin's most famous general, Shirku, was marching into Egypt on the invitation of Shawar. Shawar had not wished to take so desperate a step, but now he offered Nuruddin a third of the land of Egypt and fiefs for his generals. When the invitation reached him, Nuruddin gave Shirku 8,000 horsemen and a war chest of 200,000 dinars to use with the army of Damascus for the conquest of Egypt, and he ordered Saladin to accompany him. Shawar, uncertain still where his interest lay, warned Amalric who moved with his army towards the isthmus, hoping to fall on Shirku as he emerged from the desert. But Shirku slipped past him to the south. There was no alternative now for the Franks but evacuation. Ordering his fleet to return to Acre and summoning the garrison left in the fortress of Bilbais to join him, Amalric began his retreat on the 2nd of January 1169. Six days later, the general Shirku entered Cairo, leaving his army encamped at the gate of El-Luk. He went to the palace, where the caliph gave him ceremonial gifts and promised money and food for his troops. Shawar greeted him cordially. For the next few days, he visited him daily to discuss financial arrangements and a partition of Egypt. Shirku received these overtures graciously, but his nephew Saladin, who was his chief advisor, insisted on further action. The Fatimid caliph was persuaded to come in disguise to Shirku's headquarters. Then on the 18th of January, Shawar was invited to join Shirku on a little pilgrimage to the tomb of the holy As-Shafi. As he set out, Saladin and his emirs fell on him. His escort was disarmed and he himself taken prisoner. In less than an hour, an order from the Fatimid caliph for his decapitation had been produced and his head was lying at the caliph's feet. Then, to avoid any attempt against himself, the general Shirku announced that anyone who wished could pillage the late vizier's house. As the mob rushed there, he and the caliph moved to the palace and quickly took over the government. Shawar's rule had been unpopular and Shirku's regard for legitimacy too scrupulous for any of the provincial governors to oppose the new regime. Within a few weeks... The general Shirku was master of all Egypt. His emirs took over the fiefs that had belonged to Shawar and all his family, and he himself had the title of vizier and king. But Shirku did not long survive his elevation. He died probably from a throat infection due to tonsillitis that couldn't be cured at the time, on the 23rd of March 1169. His fame in history has been outshone by those of his master Nuruddin and of his nephew Saladin. Yet it was he who saw more clearly than any other Muslim that the conquest of Egypt, with its strategic position and its boundless resources, was essential if Islam was to defeat the Crusaders. And in spite of the hesitations and scruples of his master Nur ad-Din, he had worked ceaselessly to this end. His nephew, Saladin, was to reap the harvest of his persistence. The importance of Shirku's conquest of Egypt was well realised by the Crusaders, while some of them blamed it on the greed of Miles of Plancy, who had made his king accept money rather than fight, 
Others sought a scapegoat in the master of the hospital, who was forced to retire from his post and go home to the West. King Amalric himself appealed to the West for a new crusade, an impressive embassy led by the patriarch and the Archbishop of Caesarea was dispatched early in 1169 with letters to the German Emperor Frederick, to the French King Louis VII, and to Henry II of England. But after two days at sea, the ambassador's ships ran into so severe a storm that they were driven all the way back to Acre, and none of the passengers would consent to risk again the perils of the sea. A second embassy was sent out, led by Frederick, Archbishop of Tyre. It reached Rome in July 1169, and Pope Alexander III made an appeal to the kings of Europe for another crusade. But none answered his call, for the French King Louis was at war with the English King Henry, and the Pope himself was at odds with the German Emperor. Therefore, it was to the Byzantines that King Amalric now turned. The Byzantine Emperor Manuel was well aware that the balance of power in the East was dangerously upset. He offered Amalric the cooperation of the great Byzantine fleet for his next campaign. Amalric accepted gladly. Egypt might yet be recovered for the Crusaders. Nur ad-Din seemed to be fully occupied in the north of his kingdom, where the lawless Turks were causing him problems. Meanwhile, in Egypt, Shirkuz's titles and power had passed to his nephew Saladin. But Saladin's relations with the Fatimid Caliph, who was the religious leader of Egypt, were very bad. Indeed, the Caliph's chief advisor, a Nubian eunuch called Al-Mutaman, wrote secretly to the Crusaders to promise help should the Franks invade Egypt. Unfortunately for him, one of Saladin's agents, puzzled by the shape of a pair of sandals worn by his court messenger, took them and unstitched them and found the letter within. Saladin wanted to take vengeance against the caliph, but news of his insecurity encouraged the Christians to attack. King Amalric urged haste on the Byzantine emperor, and on the 10th of July 1169, the Byzantine imperial armada set out from Constantinople under the command of the Grand Duke Andronicus Contestephanus. The main Byzantine fleet sailed to Cyprus, capturing two Egyptian ships on the way, and a smaller squadron made straight for Acre, bringing money subsidies for Amalric's soldiers. Amalric was asked to send to Cyprus as soon as he wished the fleet to sail on, but Amalric was not ready. The campaign of 1168 had disorganised his forces. The Hospitallers' losses had been very heavy. The Templars still refused to take part, and the Crusader barons discouraged by their previous invasion of Egypt, were no longer as enthusiastic as before. It was only in late September that he summoned the fleet to Acre, where its splendid appearance thrilled the inhabitants, and it was only in mid-October that the whole Byzantine crusader expedition was ready to leave for Egypt. The delay was doubly unfortunate. The Byzantine Emperor Manuel, who was given to optimism, had counted on a short campaign and had provisioned the Byzantine ships for three months only. The three months were indeed nearly over already. Cyprus, not yet recovered from Reynal's ravaging, had not been able to help in the replenishment of their supplies, nor were provisions obtainable at Acre. 
At the same time, Saladin received ample warning of the expedition to secure himself in Cairo on the 20th of August 1169. He arrested and beheaded the Fatimid Caliph's eunuch al-Mutaman, then dismissed all the palace servants known to be faithful to the Caliph, replacing them with his own supporters. The dismissed officers, encouraged by the Caliph, incited the Nubian palace guard to revolt and attack Saladin's troops. Saladin's brother counterattacked but could do nothing until Saladin set fire to the guard's barracks at Fostat, knowing their wives and families to be there. The Nubians fled to rescue them. Saladin's brother then fell on them and slaughtered them almost to a man. The caliph, who had been watching the battle, hastened to assure Saladin of his loyalty. His desertion of the Nubians completed their rout. The Armenian guard, which had not taken part in the fighting, was burnt to death in the barracks. The opposition to Saladin in Cairo was silenced. Meanwhile, the Christian army set out at last on the 16th of October. The Byzantine admiral Andronicus Contostephanus, chafing at King Almeric's delays, offered to convey the bulk of the soldiers by sea, but the Franks insisted on the land route. On the 25th of October, the Crusader army entered Egypt at Farama near Pelusium. Saladin expected an attack on the fortress of Bilbais and concentrated his forces there, but the Crusaders ferried over the eastern branches of the Nile by the Byzantine ships who had kept pace with them along the coast, marched swiftly to Damietta, the rich fortress that commanded the main branch of the Nile, up which the fleet could then sail towards Cairo. Saladin was taken by surprise. He dared not leave Cairo himself for fear that the Fatimid supporters might be encouraged to revolt, but he sent reinforcements to Damietta and wrote himself to Syria to beg for help from Nuradin. The garrison at Damietta had thrown a great chain across the river. The Byzantine ships, already delayed by contrary winds, could not sail up past the city and intercept the troops and the provisions that came downstream from Cairo. A sudden assault might have captured the fortress, but though the Byzantine Admiral Contostephanus, anxious about his dwindling supplies, urged immediate action, King Amalric was awed by the huge Egyptian fortifications. He wished to construct more siege towers. His first tower, by some error of judgment, had been placed against the strongest part of the walls. The Byzantines, to the horror of the local Christians and Muslims, used their engines to bombard a quarter sanctified by a chapel dedicated dedicated to the Holy Virgin, who had halted there in her flight. Every day fresh troops arrived in the city. Every day the Byzantine sailors and their compatriots on shore had their rations reduced, and their Frankish allies, who were amply supplied, would give them no help. Every day Contostephanus pleaded with King Amalric to risk a full-scale attack on the walls, and Amalric answered that the risk was too great, and his generals, always suspicious of the Byzantines, whispered that Contostephanus's zeal was caused by a desire to have Damietta as part of the Byzantine spoils of war. By the beginning of December, it was clear 
that the expedition had failed. Without food, the Byzantines could go on no longer. In addition, a fireboat launched by the Egyptians into the middle of the Byzantine fleet had caused heavy losses. The Egyptian fortress was now well manned and well supplied, and a Muslim army was said to be approaching from Syria. When the rains came early and turned the Christian camp into a morass of mud, it was time to raise the siege. Whether King Amalric or the Byzantine Contestephanus was the first to begin negotiations with the Egyptians is uncertain, nor are the terms that were arranged known to us. A money indemnity was probably given to the Crusaders, and King Amalric certainly hoped that a show of friendship towards Saladin might detach him from Nuradin, with whom his relations were suspected of not being very good. On the 13th of December, the Christians burnt all their siege machines to prevent them from falling into Muslim hands and moved from Damietta. The Crusader army retreated back to Ascalon on the 24th. The Byzantine fleet was less fortunate. As it sailed northward, a great storm arose. The starving Byzantine sailors could not control their ships and many of them foundered for days. Byzantine corpses were washed ashore on the coast of Palestine. Constantinus himself escaped and sailed to Cilicia and thence travelled overland to report to the Byzantine emperor. The remains of the Byzantine fleet reached Constantinople early in the new year. The disastrous outcome of the expedition inevitably gave rise to recriminations. The Crusaders blamed the Byzantines for their shortage of supplies. The Byzantines more reasonably blamed the Crusaders for their endless delays. But both King Amalric and the Byzantine Emperor realised that the alliance must not be broken, for Saladin was now the unquestioned master of Egypt, and little did the Crusaders know that he would become their greatest enemy. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on this podcast. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear how Saladin used his control of Egypt as the first step on his path towards uniting the Islamic world against the Crusaders.